Hi, friends. Welcome to Season 5 of The Activity Continues, a paranormal podcast. I'm Amy, the producer and host of this show, along with Megan and the other Amy. We are three soul friends who love to talk about the Dead Files TV show, along with other spooky and spooky adjacent things. We are just starting our third year, and it's going to be the best one yet. Hi, everyone. I'm Megan, our resident scaredy cat. (laughs) I love this stuff, but it absolutely terrifies me. (laughs) It doesn't terrify me. Me neither. Most of the time. Hey, everyone. I'm the other Amy, sometimes referred to as Amy, Amy P, or AP. And I'm the voice of reason in the chaos, trying to keep these two spooky, goofy, lovely ladies in line. (laughs) We're creating a community of like-minded friends who love to discuss all things paranormal. Along with our thoughts and tangents, you will also hear listener stories and interviews with paranormal professionals, Dead Files clients, and people with personal paranormal experiences. So far, we've spoken to a witch, an intuitive, a shaman, a UFO abductee, and a handful of Dead Files clients. We're always looking for more cool and interesting people to talk to. So if you're interested, please reach out to theactivitycontinues at gmail.com or fill out the guest intake form on our website, theactivitycontinues.com. We'd love to hear from you. Come join us where the activity activity continues. They told me if I was going with him, I could not stay home. I had to decide what I wanted most, my mother's home or him. And at the time, I wanted him. When I was a child, I ran for BIMS. Welcome back to Volstead Land. I'm Heather and this is Amy. Hello. Join us as we comb through the history of Minneapolis and discover the city's underworld. This is season two, where we take some deeper dives into some of the stories we touched on in season one. Today we're talking about Marilyn Ann Tollefson and the white slavery case. This previously came up last season in episode 10, the wrap up, but there was just so much good stuff that I wanted to take a deep dive. I've been researching it for months, and new things keep being revealed almost every day, but I decided it was time to sit down and tell Heather all about it. If anyone listening is related to Marilyn Ann Tollefson, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at volstedland at gmail.com or check the show notes or description of this episode for more contact info. We hope you enjoy it. So I have to tell you about my meeting I had. So this past weekend, I met with one of my sources, and she had a pretty amazing story for me about her father. I want to keep them anonymous, even though he's long dead. 
He doesn't have any brothers or sisters, and neither does she, so it's not likely that anybody's going to figure out who they are. But at any rate, she had some great stories. So one thing I thought was kind of cute, when she was little, she went through the neighborhood pulling a wagon, collecting grease, kitchen grease from people that they would then turn over to companies, manufacturing companies to use during the war. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that, who knew? <laughs> yeah. I didn't even think that was a thing. This is the part I thought was really interesting. Her father, she, she said that she thought maybe he was a bootlegger, but in, in previous conversations, she had told me that she thought her dad was a bootlegger, but she said, oh, everybody was. It's no big deal. So this time she tells me that, well, and I don't know if I mentioned this before, but her father at one point took a trip to Chicago and was gone for like a day and came back with a brand new Cadillac. Oh, interesting. Somebody had given (laughs) to her in Chicago. So she said that her dad was a milkman. He came up with an idea for the bootleggers and He gave this idea to somebody who then passed it on to the higher ups in the bootlegging, whatever. It got to the big guys. He then had a meeting with some of these big bootleggers and got got to give his idea. And his idea was to hide the booze in milk jugs and then deliver the milk to the customers. And he did a lot of deliveries to bars and restaurants. (laughs) And they liked his idea so much. I believe they used it. And he probably did deliver the quote unquote milk (laughs) to people. And I'm thinking that's why he got the car. Yes. As payment for his work as a milk. Great idea. Mm -hmm. As a quote unquote (laughs) milk man. So she also said that while he was in Chicago and she didn't hear about this until many years later. The trip to Chicago was before she was even born. And then many years later, after her mother died and she would go visit her father and he would tell stories to her all day, he started opening up more about the stuff. And he told her that when he went to Chicago, he met up at a bar with Al Capone. Wow. (laughs) And they did a blood oath. They cut their thumbs and did a brother blood oath. Her dad and Al Capone. Oh my goodness. Wow. That's quite know, a right? story. I know. Al Capone. <laughs> I know. Big time. No wonder he got yeah. a Cadillac. <laughs> I know. Cool. It was fun. Yeah. So what's new with you? I had the strangest day yesterday, but so much fun. I went to Bryant Lake Bowl for breakfast and then they had like a Maker's Mart type thing. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go and support it. And it was just really fun. And this lady was drawing these $5 Valentine Day cards. I ended up like buying like six of them. I, I was sitting at the bar and like, I was, I was texting people. I know, send me a picture of your cat. And then like, I'd go and like, have <laughs> do it. And then I'd PayPal her $5. And so I'm sitting at the bar and there's this old man there. He's 72 and he's just talking to me and he's, and he's just an old drunk guy. And I'm like, at first I was just kind of annoyed by him. So I was just looking at my phone, but then he saw my, my cat pictures that I had in front of me. And he's like, I have a cat too. And I'm like, Oh yeah. And he like brings up a picture of his cat and he's showing me. And I'm like, 
oh, I'll, I'll have a card made for you. Let me, let me get a picture, you know? So I was, I wanted him to text me the picture of his cat. So then I, cause the way it worked is then I would post it to this woman's Instagram account. Okay. And then she on her phone would draw a picture of your cat. Okay. So he's flipping through, trying to find the best picture of his cat. And he couldn't even figure out how to forward a picture to me. <laughs> okay. So I don't know how he sends all the dick pics he sends. Are you kidding no, me? And he's not even like stopping or being embarrassed or like trying to flip through them quicker or anything. He's just like, he wanted you to I see don't him. know, but it was really, really awkward. I'm not sure they're his dick because they, I, I wasn't, I, I mean, I, they didn't look 72. It didn't look 72, but he had him in his camera roll. Like, so it's, it looks like mm. he took the pictures because I, I, this guy definitely doesn't know how to screenshot something and see it because right. he couldn't even figure out how to forward a picture in a text. Uh huh. Which I'm glad I don't want him to have my phone number. So I'm glad. I, so what he did is he just, I just took a picture of his picture on his phone of the cat, not the, I was going to say that you're flirting with danger. If you give him your, I know I didn't realize I, when I came up with this idea, I didn't realize that he he was going to have all these dick pics, but anyway, she made him a big picture of his cat on a doily. And like, I paid him, I paid $5 for the thing. It was in crayon, right? It's she's bad pet art is what she's calling herself. Yeah, it was like I gave him a million dollars. He like practically uh, cried. He loved it so much. Like, oh my god! Like, he just loved it. And like, he went and he gave the woman some cash for a tip, and then he bought me a drink. And like, he was showing everyone at the bar. And oh. um, she, they're gonna do it again next weekend. And he's like, I'm gonna come back with some pictures of my friends' cats, and this is so great. And. It was just like a really cool experience. I that's cool. I just had a good time. Dick pics so. aside. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's my weekend. Cool. All right. Well, okay. should we get Let's started? Do it. All right. Okay, so this is the story of Marilyn Tollefson and the white slavery case. So we did talk about this a bit in episode 10, the wrap up, but I only touched on it because the more I researched, the more interesting things I found out about it. And I wanted to make sure it got a full episode. So what I had told you last time is that Isidore Blumenfeld, a.k.a. Kikan, Izzy to us, was convicted and sentenced to two years in prison for white slave charges. He stood trial with his friend, Monty Perkins, whose original last name was Perkansky, and he is the brother of Izzy's good friend, Abe Perkansky. Of yep. Abe. So this is from Wikipedia. In the mid-19th century, the term white slavery was used to describe the Christian slaves that were sold into the Barbary slave trade. The modern legal term applies more narrowly to sexual slavery, forced prostitution, and human trafficking with less focus on the race of the victims or perpetrators. In this case, it involved transporting a woman to Minnesota and to Miami for quote-unquote immoral purposes. In other words, she was a sex worker and he was paying for her to come visit him wherever he lived. He actually just paid for her transportation 
It's not like he had her in the trunk of the car, which, like I said before, was totally what I pictured at first. <laughs> so she went there on her own. Yeah. She they asked went there could, willingly, right. got paid for it. Yep. And they paid right. they paid her transportation is what the mm. what the problem was, apparently. Right. If she had paid her own way, it wouldn't have made that much difference. So we will be having a special guest come on in the next episode or two who will give us a little more background on this man act. So I don't want to go into it too much, but here's a little bit. This is also from Wikipedia. The White Slave Traffic Act, also called the Man Act, is a United States federal law passed in June 25th, 1910. It is named after Congressman James Robert Mann of Illinois. In its original form, the act made it a felony to engage in interstate or foreign commerce transport of, quote, any woman or girl for the purpose of prostitution or debauchery or for any other immoral purpose, unquote. Its primarily stated intent was to address prostitution, immorality, and human trafficking, particularly where trafficking was for the purpose of prostitution. It was one of several acts of protective legislation aimed at moral reform during the progressive era, which doesn't sound that progressive. (laughs) In practice, its ambiguous language about immorality resulted in it being used to criminalize even consensual sexual behavior between adults, which I do believe is what was going on here in this case. Mm -hmm. So that's that. So we're going to go back to the beginning now. The Tollefson family lived here in Minneapolis. Marilyn Tollefson was born July 9th, 1932. She was the youngest child of five, being raised by her single mother. They were divorced. And her mother was a power machine operator, according to the 1940 census. Machine operators are responsible for managing the machines assigned to them. They set up, install, operate, maintain, troubleshoot, and ensure quality output. Which doesn't really sound like a woman's job, but I think that, you know, war times, women had jobs that men had because they were off fighting. Yeah, my grandmother made ammunition in a factory Mm. during the war. My grandmother worked for Honeywell, and she did, I know she did some kind of wartime stuff there, too. I Mm -hmm. think later she ended up making other things for Honeywell, security systems or something. But but yeah, back then, I think she did that, too. But I think it was more like sitting there and putting things together. I don't think it was like managing big machines. Right, right. So in 1945, Marilyn ran away from home and she ended up at the Sock Center State Home for Girls. She was 13. Side note, the Sock Center State Home for Girls was Minnesota's first single sex reformatory for girls from its establishment in 1911 to 1967 when it switched to a co-educational model and shortened its name to the Minnesota Home School. The facility closed entirely in 1999. This is another rabbit hole that I almost fell down. (laughs) While I was searching this because it was interesting. According to one book, it was also a place where girls went when they were in a certain condition. Oh, so I don't know if that was Marilyn's thing or not. I mean, she was 13. It could have been. Uh, In 1948, she ran away for good and she took a sales job with a traveling magazine solicitation crew. There she met her husband, whose name is James Crow. And I went, really? Oh, (laughs) They were married on June 10th, 1950. She was 17. They lived in New Jersey, but they were on the road most of the time traveling the nation, selling magazines. The marriage didn't last and she left him after a few months. It came out in the trial, no doubt trying to shame her, 
that she had quote unquote had relations with the supervisor of the crew and continued to do so throughout the marriage with the knowledge of her husband. She admitted that she had sexual relations with several men before her marriage and after she left her husband. She never sought a divorce. So they're still married, I guess. (laughs) I don't know if they're still alive. In 1952, she left that job and went to Patterson, New Jersey and met up with gangster Abner Longy Swillman, the king of the New Jersey underworld. So you can bet this was another rabbit hole because I'm like, oh, I got to know. I've never heard of Longy Swillman. I need to know more about him. So uh, this might have to be another deep dive, but he died February 26, 1959 by suicide hanging. He was an associate of the Luciano family and he dated Jean Harlow. Really? Actress. He was a big bootlegger around 1929 to 1932. And he apparently killed himself because he was being investigated for, a, for his coin operated businesses, his cigarette oh. machines and laundry. I was telling Greg about this and he said uh, he didn't kill himself, (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of what I thought too. You know, he was, he was Epstein, but who knows? So in the story of his death that I found an article in the paper, uh, there was a woman named Virginia Hill. And it was interesting to me because I knew that Marilyn used to use the name Virginia sometimes one of her aliases. So I wondered if it was her. And so I spent probably at least a full eight hour day looking for that article again. I thought I saved it, but I didn't save it. I can't find it. It's like I dreamed it. I it's not, I can't find it. <laughs> so I just did a search on Virginia Hill and I found out she's actually a real person. She was um, a gangster's girlfriend. She was a girlfriend to a lot of gangsters. So I don't think it's Marilyn, but that's another rabbit hole. Cause I'd like to research Virginia Hill too. She seems fascinating being the, the mall of a lot of these. <laughs> Out of these guys. So November 1953 is when Marilyn Tollefson traveled to Minneapolis for her sister Muriel's wedding. Muriel's wedding. I believe is the name of a <laughs> name of a movie. <laughs> uh, while she was in town, she was visiting a friend at the Kennesaw Cafe slash drugstore, which is at 13th and Nicollet, and was at one point owned by Yiddy and Vernon Bloom, who is Yiddy is Izzy's brother. This is where she was first introduced to Izzy, who was going by Fergie now. And just to note, I'll call him Fergie through the rest of this episode, as long as I can remember to, because that's the name she uses for him. And we'll be quoting her a lot. And I don't want to confuse people. So they chatted for a bit and then they moved to the Kennesaw bar, which was next door. And they had some drinks and she gave him her mother's phone number. She had been staying with her mother. He called her the following Saturday and asked her to dinner. Now, keep in mind, he's still married to Lillian at this time, but he's just dating this 20-year-old. He's 53. I don't know. I mean, maybe Lillian was okay with this. Maybe she was on board. I mean, it couldn't have been his first affair. So it doesn't seem like he was hiding it is, I guess, what I'm getting at. Um, They went to dinner with another couple, June and Gramps Goldstein. Gramps' real name is also Isidore. Oh, so they went to dinner with them that following Saturday at the Criterion Cafe in St. Paul. I looked up the place and it was famous for their popovers. Love popovers. I think it's interesting that he's having an affair and he's cheating on his wife, but he's inviting another couple to come. Yeah, so exactly. Really That's why I think she had to have known about it. On a Saturday night? I would presume that couple knows his wife. Probably. <laughs> I mean, I thought all the Jewish gangsters knew each other. I would think. 
Yeah. So this is my other rabbit hole. I think this is uh, number four now so far. So Gramps was also a bookie and a gambler. And a year later in November of 1954, Gramps was charged by the U.S. attorney, George McKinnon, with not paying the federal excise tax on bets that he accepted and not paying the $50 occupational stamp and not registering with the IRS. And then McKinnon went after him again in 1957, but I stopped digging because I just didn't want to. At the trial, she said that it was two or three weeks later that she and Fergie began began to have sexual relations. She was asked at this point in the testimony if she'd ever been a prostitute, and she said yes. And when asked when, she said in about 1953, and they asked, with whom did you first consider yourself a prostitute? And she answered, with Fergie. They began seeing each other quite frequently. They went to the Kennesaw Bar and to Danny's Bar, which was on 14th and Chicago. It's just now a parking lot. Uh, but it was owned by Dan Schneider, who is the husband of Fergie's sister, Mary. Oh, okay. so keeping it all in the family. That's another thing. If the whole family knows he's taken his, his side chick around oh, right. everywhere. William knew about it. She had to. They continued their affair with him giving her money frequently, but not necessarily every time they got together. They told me if I was going to be with him, I could not stay home. I had to decide what I wanted most, my mother's home or him. And at that time, I wanted him. So he helped her get an apartment at the Mark Twain Hotel in Minneapolis. I looked up the address and there's no hotel there now, but a block away, there's an ice cream place called Izzy's. Oh, Izzy's ice cream. I know. They're related? Yeah. I know. <laughs> I, I, you know what? Actually, I, I found the website of Izzy's ice cream and I sent them a note asking if there was any relation but I haven't heard back yet. So Fergie helped her pay her rent and took her out to dinner paid for whenever they went gambling, he paid. So at some time in 1954, she attempted to cash some bad checks and a Kennesaw bar regular named Heine Cuba arranged to make good of the checks to the tune of $300. And Fergie was quite angry with her for getting into this mess. Right. She frequently requested money from Fergie's friend and co-defendant, Monty Perkins. And although the evidence showed that Perkins had a very modest income with a wife and three children to support, he nevertheless sent Tollefson money on many occasions, purchased clothing and other things for her, and paid a substantial hospital bill, which she had incurred. So do we think she is was having sex with him for this money? Yes. Well, some people, yeah. Some people think so. Some people say no. They both said both yes and no. Uh So I don't know that we'll ever know. But so this is a quote from the Star Tribune. There was evidence that Perkins knew that Tollefson was prostituting herself. This is borne out rather strongly by several of her letters to him. Now, in these letters, this is not a quote anymore. In these letters, she professed her love for Perkins. I can't seem to find these letters. They were probably destroyed or lost, but I would sure love to see them. I did find a couple articles that quoted the letters or talked about what the letters said. And in one article, it said that on two or three occasions, the humor in her letters shook the courtroom with laughter. (laughs) One letter written January 5th, 1955, she was telling him of the shortage of quote unquote fast boys in Miami at the time. She said, I won't fool with any squares. And Can's lawyer asked her what she meant by fast boys. 
And she replied that it was the name for her customers. And when asked what a square was, she said, legitimate men like yourself. She denied on the witness stand ever having intimacy with Monty. The court alleged that she had relations with Monty throughout 1954. He would later testify that their relationship was very emotional, but platonic. In the letters, she'd said, I only wish I could grow up emotionally, but that's the only thing I can't seem to do. She had a mental block, which kept her from being honest with other people, she said. Additionally, she testified, quote, Monty always wanted me to stay away from what he called the two-bit hoodlums, jerks that hung around bars. He always told me to go after the real money, the big men. (laughs) It was around this time when Fergie set Marilyn up with Fred Osana's son, Robert. Now, Fred Osana is the head of the Twin City Rapid Transit Company. Yes. He and... Fergie is a knew each other well. Uh, apparently, he Fergie initiated orgies in which a number of people were involved. Wow, she says, yeah, she says she went to a hotel with Fergie and Robert and was intimate with both of them. Some stories say that she had relations with Robert and Fergie just watched, and some say it was a threesome. On the stand, she stated that she had sex with both of them. She grew tired of her apartment at the Mark Twain and Heine the guy from the bar who helped her with the bad checks uh, was asked by Fergie to get her a new place, help her find a new place. They ended up at the Oak Grove hotel, which is at two thirty Oak Grove. And it's still there. And it looks just the same yep. from the outside. Anyway, the inside probably does too. Who knows? So things started going sour with Fergie and she started seeing other men taking them to local hotels, but would still see Fergie and he would give her 500 to a hundred dollars each time. So let's note that this amounts to about, to $900 in today's money. She stayed at the Oak Grove Hotel until she moved to New York in 1954, July. When she was asked at the trial why she moved to New York, she said, Well, I wasn't getting along with Fergie, for one thing. He was making things a little tough for me. She was asked to describe an incident with him that made her want to move. She told a story about going to a bar in North Minneapolis, and he was paying what she felt was undue attention to some other women. They fought on the way back home to her apartment. Then one word led to another and he hit me and told me he ought to take me out in the country and bury me. Oh no. Yeah. Shortly after she got to New York, she wired him for $200. He responded with a phone call saying that she was not to wire him. She said that he told her to never send him another telegram ever that she should call him. If she couldn't contact him, she should contact Monty Perkins because he didn't want these to be traceable. Thereafter, from time to time throughout the period covered by the indictments, Tollefson was in contact with Monty Perkins. Fergie and Monty arranged for her in November of 1954 to go to Miami. And she said she went, quote unquote, on a lark, but she was actually having an affair with another man. So she called Perkins, got the plane ticket to Minneapolis. Then she asked him to change it to Miami, which he did. And they went to Miami. And she talks about going to Miami and living in an apartment that she paid for with Fergie's money. And she was intimate with him there too. Wow. I don't know what happened to the poor sap at home. but (laughs) Unleash the power of stories anywhere, anytime with Audible. 
Immerse yourself in gripping stories, insightful knowledge, and captivating characters anytime, anywhere. Audible is your library on the go. With hundreds of thousands of titles across every genre, there's a world of reading waiting for your ears. Listen while you cook, clean, or commute. Free your eyes to conquer your day, all while feeding your mind. Start your 30-day free trial today and discover the joy of listening. Go to audibletrial.com slash TAC. That stands for The Activity Continues. With your free 30-day trial, you get one credit, two credits if you're a Prime member, good for any premium selection titles you like, yours to keep. You get the Audible Plus catalog of podcasts, audiobooks, guided wellness, and Audible originals. Listen all you want. No credits needed. Again, that is audibletrial.com slash TAC. If you're a regular listener, you know we love our three spirit drinks. They are the non-alcoholic spirit drinks that are taking the world by storm. Three Spirit is a range of three distinct drinks, each with its own unique flavor and effect. The Livener is a refreshing and invigorating drink that is perfect for starting your day or night. The Social Elixir is a smooth and sophisticated drink that's perfect for sharing with friends. And the Nightcap is a calming and relaxing drink that's perfect for winding down before bed. All three drinks are made with plant-based ingredients and are free from alcohol, gluten, and sugar. They're also vegan and ethically sourced. So whether you're looking for a delicious and refreshing drink to enjoy on its own or a sophisticated non-alcoholic alternative to cocktails, Three Spirit is the perfect choice for you. Try Three Spirit today and discover the difference. Visit us.3spiritdrinks.com and use the promo code The Activity Continues for 15% off your entire order. Cheers. Cheers! That was our best cheer. one yet. So now it's January 15th, 1955. Fergie and Monty sent her $250 for travel from Miami to Minneapolis. And the government alleges anyway that they had relations then until February 15th, 1955. She also engaged in prostitution on her own, but said that Fergie had no part in this activity. They also allege that there were at least four occasions when she was paid 200 to 250 by Fergie. And they also paid her bill at Fairview Hospital on December 30th, 1955. I don't know what she was in for. Right. That's interesting. So 1957, she had been working as a secretary for Playboy magazine in Chicago when she was subpoenaed to testify before the grand jury in St. Paul. They were investigating Fergie for, quote unquote, moral turpitude. (laughs) Perkins had picked her up at the airport and told her that Fergie wanted her to deny having relations with him. She wanted to just plead the fifth, but Monty convinced her to flat out lie, promising to help her if she was ever seriously ill again, if she would do what he said. So February, 1957, she testified at the grand jury and lied saying she had never had sex with Fergie. She met up with him after the testimony at the Kennesaw bar where his only comment to her was, and this is a quote from her, that they were getting pretty low when they were trying to indict him on his sexual life, she said. Mm. When she'd returned to Chicago, she lost her job at Playboy. 
So flash forward to 1959. She was living in Las Vegas and she hit what she called rock bottom. She was in a hospital in Vegas and about to go into surgery for a tubal pregnancy. Side note, she did not identify the father of the unborn child, but did say it was not Fergie. She reached out to Fergie for help, but he ignored her. She tried Monty Perkins, as she'd been instructed to do before. Even though Monty had helped to pay her and get her plane tickets, et cetera, this whole time, this time he told her, Fergie's not going to be shaken down by you any longer. You better just leave Fergie alone. If you don't, you'll be in real trouble. During her testimony at the trial, she said, I was very sick and I was scared to death and I didn't know what was going to happen to me next. When asked why she was frightened, she said, Well, number one, from Perkins' tone of voice, the next thing I expected to do was get knocked off. Wow. I have in my notes, Hollywood, are you listening to this? Make this movie. (laughs) And let's just note, this is the third time that her life has been threatened by these two. Yeah, my goodness. But she keeps going back and asking for more money. When's she going to learn her lesson? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, I think this um, this was the final straw because then she tried to contact Yiddy Bloom, Fergie's brother, to get a plane ticket to go home. Yiddy was well known as the sweetheart of the family. I knew when Yiddy of all people didn't answer, I knew I wasn't going to get any help. Yiddy is known around Minneapolis as having the biggest heart in the whole town. So she ended up getting financial help from another underworld guy she knew. And I can't remember his name. I decided I wasn't even going to go there because I I found that today. (laughs) And I'm like, I can't, I can't, I got, we got to get going. Anyway, this is when she decided to go to the FBI and tell them everything. And then the grand jury indicted Fergie on September 18th of 1959. They'd already been researching him for a couple of years over the the liquor syndicate thing. So here's some stuff leading up to the trial. So, Fergie surrendered to the U.S. Marshal in Miami on September 21st. He paid a bail of $50,000, which was set by the Miami judge, and it had been arranged previously between him and his lawyer. His co-defendant, Monty Perkins, was arrested on the same day in Minneapolis and was released under a $25,000 bail. Marilyn Tollefson had been living in a hotel in Duluth in preparation for the trial, and she had run up a bill of over $700 in liquor and entertainment during her four weeks there. She's had a good time, I guess. She was registered as Mrs. R. Severson. She tried to charge those bills to the government. Oh. (laughs) But the U.S. attorney said they would not pay the bill because, quote, Miss Tollefson's tremendously bad conduct up there. She was actually taken out of there and put in jail so she couldn't do it. Which is bullshit because two days after Monty and Fergie were arrested, September 23rd, 1959 in Duluth, she was assaulted by three men. She identified two of them as Louis Lepore and Jack Apple, who are big underworld guys. She couldn't identify the third one, but believed it to be Jake Resnick. Lauren, that I, one of my sources, the guy that gave me all the files, he knows a lot about Jack Apple. And I'm sure he knows about the other guys as well, but he is, he's mentioned Jack Apple before. So that might be another thing we might want to look into. Uh, no official complaint on intimidating a government witness was instituted. She would not end up testifying in court about this assault, but police had evidence of clothing, which revealed cigarette burns and other witnesses saw cigarette burns on her body. Wow. 
On September 25th, she was placed in protective custody, so actual jail. At this point, the government now made up a new reason not to pay her hotel bill. They refused because the prosecution noted that if they did, it would look very bad for them, as though they were grooming the witness. Right. It was around this time the paper started naming her, although they got her name wrong. First, they called her Anita Carlson, then Marilyn Cohn. I assume she gave these names. I assume they're aliases of hers. And I don't know where she got them, but I did Google those names and they're actual women that lived in Minneapolis at the time. So she probably just pulled them out of the newspaper. As a side note, Izzy did sell did sell his house on 5900 Oakland Avenue South for $60,000 right around this time of the trials. Uh, it's now worth $706,000. It's a cute little house. It's not that little. It's a cute house. Fergie's lawyer tried everything to get this trial moved either physically to Chicago or moved into the future. He even tried to claim that his client was not the Isidore Blumenfeld they were looking for. Huh. Even though Fergie <laughs> admitted that it was him a month previously when he surrendered in Miami, and they even sent two special agents to Miami to identify him. So one of the reasons the lawyer gave for moving the trial to Chicago was that the local papers here were calling Fergie, quote unquote, a police character. He contended also that the news, papers, and radio were publishing stories about evidence that would not have been allowed in the trial. So he thought Fergie wouldn't get a fair trial. The judge denied the motion for the change of venue and said, quote, it would be a sad reflection on Minnesota's population of 3,500,000 persons if 12 of them could not be found who would give the defendants a fair trial. <laughs> I don't think all of those three and a half million people, though, are eligible for jury duty probably not <laughs> some of them are children none of that worked and he was due to come to minneapolis for a hearing but it was postponed for a couple of weeks because friggy's lawyer was on a trip to south america i don't understand how you can as a lawyer take a trip to south america when you're in the middle of a trial and you're supposed to be here right I just don't think that would fly no no it this got moved and sh and pushed back so many times it's almost funny because he was indicted in September. The trial didn't happen until February. And that seems normal for now right. time. Yep. Or it would even be longer for now. But back then, you know, you rob a bank on Monday and you're on trial on Wednesday, you know. So on uh, December 29th, federal judge signed a removal and reduced the bond to $50,000. It was three hundred and fifty. dollars I'm guessing on this part that for the reasoning for making it three hundred and fifty dollars but it did say that in, in determining the amount for bail, they released his financial records, which the feds had been trying to get for years. Oh, So I think they just made the, the bail extremely high so, so that they, they could would find have out to... if he actually had that kind of money. Exactly. So they could get their hands on his records. Right. That's what I think. I could be wrong about that, but that's my guess. So they ordered him to appear in Minneapolis, January 18th. I noted that he was able to stall this, but just long enough to make it the coldest month in the year in Minneapolis for him to come back from Miami. The charges were violating the Slave Act and the regulations of the Securities Exchange Committee, the latter part being the part of the transit trial. Uh, the, these trials all happened at the same time. The liquor syndicate, the white slavery, and the transit trial all happened at the same time. And so it gets a little muddy when they say he was convicted of or or charged with, whatever. They're not always the same trial. 
So the, no, the papers noted that he was dressed in a dark blue business suit, white shirt with fancy gold cufflinks, blue tie, blue stockings, and polished black shoes. His lawyer pleaded for him in both, both of the cases in this one hearing. He said that the white slave indictments should be dismissed because they failed to establish the identity of the complaining witness, which is Marilyn, right. because they had only released her aliases and not her real name. She had already been in custody for three months. A conviction would mean he would get a max sentence of 25 years and a $50,000 fine. I don't know why the fine is less than the bond, but I guess you get the bond back and then you can just pay your fine with it, I guess. I don't know. They charged that he was the principal offender and was aided and abetted by Monty Perkins, alias Perkansky, and was scheduled to be tried together on February 1. He had pleaded not guilty to all charges. The lawyer, Rosen, wanted to force the district attorney to disclose how many women had testified against Fergie in the grand jury hearing back in September. He'd also asked that all of Fergie's aliases be stricken from the record. The judges agreed to remove all except Kid Can, Ferguson, and Fergie Bloom, removing only Harry Ferguson, which I had never even heard Harry Ferguson as one of his (laughs) AKs. Mm -mm. 17 newsmen were subpoenaed in this case by his lawyer to show that there was so much news about him locally. One of them was WCCO's Dave Moore, who I knew as a kid. My dad was friends with him. Really? Wow. Anyway, all the newsmen were later dismissed. They decided to not even go that route. February 3rd, he was ordered to stand trial here in Minneapolis. February 6th, he was admitted to Mount Sinai Hospital with an undisclosed illness. The paper later said that he was there for diagnostic purposes. He was released the following day. He'll do anything to not go to trial. On February 12th, the trial was delayed by weather because two of his attorneys were coming in from Philly and they got stuck in Chicago. When they got here, they selected the jury, 13 men. It was an all-male jury. Uh, Was that common? Were were women allowed to be on juries then? Yeah, they were allowed um, because there were were a bunch of women on the transit trial jury. And that was at the same time. So I just made some notes on Marilyn's testimony because she, the whole reason I wanted to do this is she just seemed like such an interesting and fun and funny person. (laughs) And so I just, I just enjoyed reading about her and digging in on some of the stuff that she said at the trial. So she seemed to be having fun with this trial and with her testimony. And here's some of the things that came out that I thought were interesting. Day one, they noted that she was dressed in a gray-green suit with a roll-neck sweater and silver earrings. Her nails were groomed in iridescent pink. (laughs) Her day two testimony slash cross-examination was designed to show what she was before she became Fergie's mistress, which is why they were asking her all about like, you know, she got married at 17 and she'd already had sex with her boss and continued to have, you know, they, they tried to paint her in a light, a certain light, I guess. But at the other hand, I think they were also trying to show that she wasn't exactly a victim. Right. You know, I don't see her as a victim in this thing. She was, she was doing what she liked to do. She liked to have sex. She got paid for it. Right. (laughs) Who cares? So she had broken down during her direct examination that took place earlier that day. But then at the time that they came around and cross-examined her, she was in a better state. She testified at one time she thought Blumenfeld was, quote, the finest man alive while she was his mistress. They asked her if she knew Mrs. Blumenfeld, 
She said she knew her by sight, but then they asked Lillian to stand up from her seat at the at the back of the courtroom. Marilyn said she recognized her and that they'd once seen her in the elevator at Harry's Cafe in Minneapolis. The pianist at the Criterion Cafe, where she went on her first date with Fergie, remembers Marilyn because she often requested the song, My Funny Valentine. There was a great article in the Pioneer Press from February 1960. This is a shout out to my buddy, Lauren, who let me borrow his treasure trove of articles. And this was one of them. This is a quote. She argued heartily at times over questions put to her by Thomas D. McBride of Philadelphia, one of Kant's three attorneys, and at other times broke into loud laughter in ridiculing his statements. At one point, she tells a story of how Monty walked into her apartment at the Oak Grove Hotel, and she had two male friends in her bed. We had been out drinking most of the night, and Mummy and Weasel went to bed at my place about daybreak. I was serving them eggs. Mummy and Weasel. (laughs) (laughs) She laughed while telling this story, and when they asked why, she said, (laughs) The whole thing tickles me. She claims that she knew he was called Kid Can and heard people speak of him with that name, but never while he was present. She always called him Fergie or Papa. Papa. (laughs) So gross. When asked how many times she'd been intimate with Fergie, she said, I don't remember. Not so many. I can't remember offhand, but I'll go home and think of them tonight for you. In the testimony, she admitted that she had committed perjury to the grand jury. She had wanted to plead the fifth to protect herself and the man she was seeing at the time, like we talked about before. Uh, But Monty told her that Fergie wanted her to lie instead. So she did. And on the stand, she said, I did lie for Mr. Blumenfeld. I've lied all my life, but I'm telling the truth here in court. (laughs) (laughs) She said, this is in the Pioneer Press. Before I met Fergie. I was a real dumb little kid. Afterward, I was a real prostitute. (laughs) Wow, okay. (laughs) Yep. She stated that after she left Fergie, she was living in Las Vegas and becoming an alcoholic. But, quote, after five months in jail as a material witness, I feel great. (laughs) So the trial was held between February 11th and February 23rd, 1960, and the jury returned the verdict as follows. They were acquitted of most of the white slavery counts, except that Fergie got one count of coercion and enticement and one count of conspiracy to commit offense or to defraud the United States. He was given a fine of $2,500 and two years incarceration. Monty was convicted on a conspiracy charge and sentenced to one year and one day. And did they serve those terms out? I believe Monty did. Fergie, no. The quick answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It came to light that Fergie and Monty had attempted to bribe a juror in the liquor syndicate case. So they pled guilty. He pled guilty. Fergie did. Uh, Fergie pled guilty to conspiring to influence a juror on the liquor syndicate trial. 
There is also another document that I got from Lawrence Files that was a uh, it was an interview with the FBI, and it said this is the he in this is Fergie. He said that an attempted bribery in connection with the jury was a very bad mistake on his part. He said Monty Perkins had told him that the husband of his waitress had worked at the Remington Rand, where one of the jurors also worked. Blumenfeld said he told Perkins that he should go ahead and see what he could do, but should make it plain that the Bloom group had done nothing bad and there was not a good case against them. Uh, They appealed. The verdict was upheld. They were denied another appeal in 1961. Fergie turned himself in to start his sentence. He was sent to Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary for an eight-year stint. The other five years were on the liquor syndicate trial and the bribery thing. He spent most of the time in the prison's medical facility. He did not spend the whole eight years there. And I'll get to that in a sec. So at the same time as the white slavery the, and the liquor syndicate trial, there was another trial going on, the Twin City Rapid Transit trial. So I'm not going to go into that very much because frankly, I think it's kind of boring and I don't know that much about it. If anybody is listening and is, is an expert, you know, I invite you to come on as a guest host and tell the story in all its glory. But I bring it up only because I do want to touch on the fact that our Marilyn also testified at this trial. The reports noted that she had changed her hair color from platinum blonde to a red tinted brunette since the other trial. I love how they comment on what she wore. What she's and wearing. What her hair and, like. yep. <laughs> I mean, they did do it on Fergie too. So I guess it's not a sexist thing as much as it seems like it is, but I, I, I'm pretty sure it, male or female, if they were dressed plainly, it wouldn't have come up but they both dress pretty flashy. So it gets mentioned. She testified that she and Fergie walked around the transit firm yards. And she thinks he mentioned that there was a partnership and business dealings with Fred Osana, the head of the TCRT, but she said she didn't know him. She also said Fergie told her that he had stock in TCRT. She spoke of this in an interview she gave with the FBI and other attorneys in February on February 5th of 1960, which is before the white slave trial, like two weeks before the trial. In this meeting, she said that Fred Osana is a member of the black hand, which they said was a term for the mafia. She also said that Fred and Fergie hated each other, but they worked together because of fear of quote, breaking up the empire. And mostly what I had seen is mostly Fred was mad that Fergie was corrupting his son via Marilyn by getting them together. So I looked up the black hand and it is taken from the Serbian Croatian words for unification or death. It was a secret military society formed in 1901 by officers in the army of the kingdom of Serbia and was instrumental in planning the assassination of the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914 precipitating the outbreak of World War I. She also said that Fergie could, quote, take care of a number of police squad members, the inspector of detectives, the inspector of police, the head and former head of the moral squad, et cetera, because most of these officers regularly visited him at the Kennesaw Bar. He had once bragged to her that he could do almost anything through his connections with the Minneapolis alderman, which is what we now call a council member, city council. She squealed on a bunch of other underworld guys too, Henry Sabus, Jack Apple, Tommy Banks, etc. 
but we can talk about all of them when and if we do a deep dive on them. They're all so interesting. She even said that Fergie bombed Sam K's house, but gave no details. Now, I don't know that much about Sam K, but I do know that that his house was bombed and a lot of people believe that Fergie did it. Really? Yeah. But there's not a whole lot of info on it that I have found. Maybe it will, maybe in books, but not, not in the newspapers and not just regular Google searches. Maybe that's another deep dive. Um, she refused to even discuss Meyer Lansky. Uh, so, you know, there's some good stories there, which you are looking into a little bit. Right? I am looking into Meyer Lansky. Good. That'll be fine. She did say that Harry Bloom was the brains of the Bloom Group and made all the business decisions. In this interview, she was asked about the white slave case. I don't know why they could ask her about it before the trial, but they did. And she said, and this is quoting the document, through his meaning, Fergie, through his efforts, she was prevailed upon to accommodate in her bedroom a chief probation officer, a Minneapolis court judge, and a Minnesota Supreme Court justice. With regard to the probation officer, he told her that Gramps Goldstein, that's the dinner companion, Gramps, yeah. would get a break in exchange <laughs> for her favors. Huh. So wow. after the trials were all over, I did find another document that was an, a memorandum in a, it's an FBI file where Fergie says that he was subjected to prosecution for no reason. He claimed and named two FBI agents who had threatened Marilyn in order to get statements for her, from her against him. He said that he had done nothing that thousands of other men don't do day by day, which in, in which cases there is not a thought of any punishment or prosecution. He also says that the testimony concerning Robert Osana, together with him and Marilyn Tollefson, was false. He said that Monty Perkins was in love with Marilyn and that he, Blumenfeld, had very little to do with Monty Perkins, nothing to the extent alleged in the trial. That's probably not true. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> Fergie also claimed that Monty Perkins had received approximately 10 telephone calls from Marilyn Tollefson since the white slave case, which she admitted that she lied on the witness stand. He said he had recordings of those conversations to prove it. And he had gone into court with motions just prior to their involvement in the jury bribery case, at which time all those motions were dropped. So they're all liars, as far as I can tell. And I guess we'll never know what really happened, but I think it makes a great story either way. Oh, and Fergie got out of prison September 1964. So he only served three of the eight years. And I searched and searched and have no idea what happened to Marilyn Tollefson. I made pleas on social media for if anyone knew where to reach out to me, but I got nothing. I can't find anything in the newspapers. She must have changed her name or something. I couldn't find an obituary. I couldn't find anything. There are other Marilyn Tollefsons, but they don't have the same middle name. And I don't think they're her. Okay. So that's it. That's the story. All right. Morning, Glory. Excellent. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Volstedland Season 2 Single Barrel Edition. Tune in next time when Heather will be telling us about the psychology of organized crime and the mafia. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode and visit us on all our social media platforms for more content. The links are in the show notes. But after five months in jail as a material witness, I feel great.
Volstedland is produced by me, Amy, at Collected Sounds Media and is part of the Collected Sounds Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. Okie doke.